Good morning, everybody in church and online. We have two Bible readings this morning. The first one is on page 495 of the Pew Bibles. It's Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. And the second one is Philippians 2, page, uh, page 1179, Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So Esther, chapter 4, this is set in the city of Susa in Persia, about 400 BC. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all, together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So now if you'd like to turn to page 1179, those who are following in the Pew Bibles. We go to Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset set as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning everyone, good to see you at church, it's nice to be here in the building and isn't it lovely to have a bit of sunshine. Um, uh, we are in the middle of a series reflecting on the, 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 the topic of work, rest and retirement, it's week three of that series and uh, we've spent a couple of weeks kind of laying down the foundations of that topic uh, in looking first at work and, now, and then at rest last week. And so the next couple of weeks, we're going to delve into more depth. The next two weeks, think a little bit more about work and, and the dynamic of it and the shape of it. And then we're going to spend the last week looking at rest. Before I do that, would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our hearts and minds uh, this morning and point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> by the way, my name's Prash. I'm the senior minister. If you're, if you're uh, new or visiting, it's good to have you. And if you're joining us online, great to have you with us too. Um, <clears throat> why do you work? Why do you work? And I don't just mean paid work, because maybe the answer is because I get paid. Why do you work, though? I mean, broadly speaking, thinking about your work and your labour, why do you work? The purpose of work is an important question. And uh, depending on maybe how you've been raised or the in educational institution you went to, they might have cast or you might have gathered a particular purpose for your work. I don't know what your answer is. Keep reflecting on that. The Bible's answer, having said that, having said all that, the Bible's answer is, uh, is very clear, actually. We work for God's glory. We work for God's glory. The Bible would say the primary purpose of your labour and your effort, whatever that is, whether it is your paid work, uh, the work you might do caring for someone, the work you might do at home, whatever your work is, the, the Bible would say the primary purpose of work is to glorify God, to glorify God. Now, we, 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 we had two Bible readings this morning. The first was from an Old Testament story of a person called Esther. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't have time, actually, to read the whole story. It's a fascinating story, and you might want to go away this week and open up and read it. Interesting story, because as you read it, you'll find that God is not overtly referred to in the story at all. This is one of those books in the Bible which doesn't refer to God at all. Not one sentence, not one word refers to God directly. It's a story about a young woman called Esther. It's a dark story, actually. It takes place after Israel has been, has, has been 
kicked out of their homeland and captured first by Babylon and then subsequently by Persia. The king is Xerxes. And Esther, this young woman, has been taken in what is in effect sexual servitude. She's a a slave of the king. Uh, And as as a young girl... She has, over the course of time, risen, so to speak, in a, in a very perverse way, I guess, through the ranks to effectively be the queen. She's the most powerful woman in the kingdom of Persia. Very problematic story, very problematic story. Along the way, her uncle remains on the outside of the palace, alive, aware of what's happening in the nation more largely, aware of the impact of uh, Xerxes' rules and commands, and, and he keeps feeding this back to, to Esther. His, un- his name is Mordecai. Another character in the story is a guy called Haman. He's basically the prime minister. So you've got Xerxes the king and Haman the prime minister. Haman is very prejudiced against Jews. In fact, he enacts a law and, and deceives Xerxes the king into signing off on it. That means basically all the Jews are to be killed. It's at this moment, in fact, that Mordecai, uh, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, comes to her and says, you need to use your position to free the Jews, to bring relief to the Jews. Okay, that's where we kind of got to in the reading. And then in the, in the events, Esther comes back to Mordecai, and Mordecai's, they've kind of got a go-between, so they're talking between this go-between. Esther says to Mordecai, her uncle, through the go-between, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. In other words, if you try to petition the king without being asked to come into his presence, there's one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold to them and spares their lives. In other words, Mordecai, for, you to do, for me to do what you're asking me to do means almost certainly death. To go and petition for the safety of the Jews may well result in me being killed. Mordecai's her uncle. He says something very challenging to her. He says this, he says, Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. He won't let her off the hook. He says, no, no, no. You're in this position right now, Esther, to petition for the Jews. Now, as I said, it's not a story that mentions God overtly at any point in it. But here's the thing. The whole point of the story of Esther is this. God is at work to ensure that his purposes take place. Even though he's not actually overtly evident in the story, he is moving. And Mordecai's point is, he has put you here, Esther, for this purpose, to do his will. And in, in effect, to rescue his people. Now, the New Testament, this is, this is a theme of the Bible. And the New Testament, in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle says this very overtly. He says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He's bringing the, the, the storyline of the Bible to this sharp point, And he says, wherever you've been placed, whatever work you've been given, ultimately is for the glory of God whether it's paid work, whether it's you know, domestic work, work of care, whether it's physical labour, all your labour, everything, everything in your life comes to this sharp point of being given for the purpose, ultimately, 
of glorifying God. You know, that the storyline, Esther is put there to glorify God by rescuing his people in this nation and therefore showing that he is still active, even though it seems like all is doomed. You are put in your position to glorify God. This is a great, this is good news. The Bible is saying your work has a genuine purpose. It has a genuine purpose and place. But it's challenging news too because it's saying ultimately the purpose of our work is to glorify God. It's to glorify God. To make God as big as he really is, as to use Pippi's analogy in Spotlight. To show him to be as big as he really is. That is the purpose of your work. Now, as you hear that, you probably think, oh, well, that makes sense for you. You're the minister. You know, I, this is an easy teaching for you. You know, this is, we, we support you to do this very thing every day. You get up, you meet people, you talk to them about Jesus, you, you run a church whose whole job is to help people trust in Jesus. You get up on a Sunday, you talk about Jesus. Of course, you can apply that principle to your life. But does that apply more generally? Well, take the story of Esther. I think this is the beauty of the story of Esther, actually. She's the most unlikely of heroes, isn't she? She's a woman in a male-dominated culture. She's a slave in a place of power. She's got there through the most questionable means. Not her fault, of course. But the story is evil in many ways. Right? There's great evil in this story. And yet the message of this story is that this woman, despite being in this position, is used by God to glorify him, to achieve his purposes. And see, if Esther can be used by God to glorify him, to make him look as big as he really is, even though he seems absent, then there isn't a, there isn't a single job that we, in, we are engaged in which is not also capable of being used by God to bring him glory. Not a single moment or energy or effort that is not capable of being used by God to glorify him. The New Testament again takes this and applies it. St. Paul says in Titus chapter 2, he says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. This is, pretty, this is a pretty extraordinary thing that Paul's saying to Titus. First of all, he's saying, teach slaves. He's not here talking about elders right, or leaders of the, of the household or the church. He's saying he's talking to the, the weakest, most unimpressive person in, in the space. And he does this a number of times. Not the only time. In fact, three of his letters, he talks to slaves directly. And his encouragement to slaves is that what they do might make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. You think in Paul's time, you think that's the job of apostles, that's the job of elders and maybe deacons. But here he's saying slaves can do that. That's pretty extraordinary. And then he says that in every way. Right? He's not saying, oh, when, when you teach the scriptures, you would make God attractive. He says, in every way, in every part of your labour as a slave. Now, slaves, of course, in Paul's time, did the most menial of tasks. And so the implication of what Paul is saying is that even the most menial of tasks has the capacity to glorify God. Even the most menial of tasks actually has the capacity to glorify God. The way you do it, 
your willingness to do it, he says, has the capacity to glorify God. The, 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 accumulate, the accumulation of this, or what the Bible's teaching is, the Bible's challenge is every one of us, when we come to consider the fundamental purpose of our work, should see that it is first and foremost to glorify God. To glorify God, to make God big. I don't know if that was... I don't know if that was your response as you thought about that initial question, what's the goal of your work? I don't know what you thought about as your work, but whatever it is, can you apply that? Here's three quick thoughts about how you might go about this task. First of all, I think you need to be intentional about it. To glorify God in your labour is an intentional activity and there is no silver bullet. It is not just do this thing and therefore your, your labour will be glorifying to God. Lead someone through this tract that will be glorifying to God. I mean, that might be, probably will be, but that's not the extent of it. In fact, I think to be intentional means to take the word of God and apply it to our lives. So this is what Paul says in another one of his letters, 1 Timothy. He says, for everything God created is good, including work, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. He says, every part of our work has the capacity to be good and God-glorifying, but there's a proviso. Only if you consecrate it with word and prayer. Only if your attitude, your approach to work, is shaped by scripture and by prayer, by communion with God. Our natural intention to work is not always to glorify God. So we actually need the Bible to constantly wash over our work. Now this is why this is why we encourage each of us to be constantly reading the scriptures in our life. It's not because by reading the Bible God becomes happier with us. It's not even just so that we might ultimately make it to heaven as good as and great as that ultimate promise is. And of course, reading the scriptures helps us to keep remembering the things which give us assurance. But reading the scriptures as well, on a constant, ongoing basis, is what shapes our attitude to all of life, including our work. You see, the Bible is not a list of um, how-tos. It's not idiot's guide to life. Well, it kind of is. But you can't just look up a chapter on how do I deal with this difficult person and there's an answer to it. It is the life shaped by scripture which ultimately takes hold in those moments, you see, and shaped by prayer. That's why we, we constantly encourage people to be reading the Bible. That's why we have weekly reading, Bible reading plans. That's why we encourage people to join a gap group because these are the places where you, just, you are constantly reminded you, your life is consecrated, set apart by word, the word of God and prayer. The second thing is you need to be ready to speak. We, when we talked about work, we said that um, work, we understand work on the basis of how God works. We understand rest on the basis of how God rests, in a sense, is because we image who God is, right? So if God works one way, that should impact the way we work. And as we look at the Bible, what we see consistently is that God primarily actually works by speaking, by a message. And so... Your work is more than speech, but it can't be less than speech. In fact, Peter will say in 1 Peter 3, always be ready to give an account for the hope that you have. He's not saying, he's not saying you batter someone, but your life 
is compelling, but that in itself is not enough. You need to be ready to speak because words in God's great economy of work are powerful. Your testimony, the story of God in your life is powerful. Not even so much for what it does for the other person, but for the way it makes God look as big as he really is. Be ready to speak. And thirdly, I think we need to be ready to risk it. I think to glorify God, we need to be ready to risk it. I think that's the other thing Esther's story tells us. Who knows, perhaps for such a time as this, you've been placed here, says Mordecai. In other words, perhaps you do need to make, you take this risk, Esther. You can't glorify God always in your life by kind of running the middle ground, having both things. And I think we live in a part of the world where we're constantly trying to find that, right? We're trying to have the cake and eat it too, so to speak. But the Bible's challenge, actually, to follow Christ is sometimes you need to be, able to, you need to be willing to trade something off to achieve the primary purpose for which you exist. I mean, I think as a parent, this is so true. We, we do have to trade off things. You have to trade off. If you're raising, you want to raise a child to know the Lord, there are times when you have to trade off your professional ambitions and path, don't you? Because, of course, there's only, apart from anything, there's only so many hours in the day. <laughs> there's only so much energy in our tank. And I think we always get in trouble, actually, when we think that we can actually do both of those things all the time. But the challenge of saying that our primary purpose is to glorify God is to acknowledge that there are other things that are secondary. And so we need to be willing to risk and trade those things off at times. I don't know what they are for you, but you need to be ready to risk it. I think it's that last one that's the hardest, isn't it? It's the hardest part about saying, I want to live my life to glorify God. It is acknowledging that sometimes I need to trade other things off. I wonder why we find that so hard. Jesus, I think, diagnoses, he's talking in John's Gospel to the Pharisees, who just refuse to acknowledge who he is at this moment. It's in John 5. And he talks about false glories. He says, How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He says, The blocker to faith, to a life of faith, is not intellectual. It's not intellectual primarily, at least not in this moment, the blocker to faith is this other glory. This glory that comes from one another, so to speak. It's what I'd call a false glory. And I think Jesus' insight is the reason that we find it hard to glorify God is that often our lives are actually consumed with other glories. With other glories. I don't know what you might describe those as, but here's some things that people go to. Sorry if you're at the back and can't read I'll read it out for you. So these are some things that people go to to try and make their life feel weighty and worthwhile. A life without discomfort. That's, that's a vision of glory. A life that's easy. The, the renovation, you know, the materialistically full life. A life that's safe and stable. That's a, that's a vision of the glorious life that we're changing. I mean, and each, as, you, as you identify each of these things, I can see how that would stop me in moments from glorifying God, from taking that risky path of being thought of well. Goodness me, that's a challenge. 
Or the ability to control the variables. You know, like if we make our life about controlling all the variables in our life, we're never going to have the energy or the time or the focus to really say the primary purpose I live is to glorify God. Or parents setting your kids up for life. It sounds like the most admirable of all those. But you can see if that is the thing that is your primary purpose in life, your, the primary glory, the thing that's most weighty in your life, how will you always make God number one? It's, it's actually interesting because that one is a good thing, which has just become an ultimate thing. This is false glory. And I'll tell you what's really, what's really tragic about false glory. It's that these things are all things that you do and ultimately in some way, shape or form benefit you. And so this kind of glory, it can actually make you a very self-focused person when you're chasing this in your life. Because all your energies are driven towards this. I think what's also challenging is that each of these things kind of ultimately fades, doesn't it? Have I told you the story of how I, when I was at high school, I had some mates who lived in Hong Kong. I was a boarder. And so every holidays they'd travel back to Hong Kong. And they knew all the best places to get kind of the rip-off merchandise, you know, the stuff that's not real but looked real. Um, and the thing that we loved at one stage was we loved wearing the, the Targ Hoyer watches. You know, this is before like smart watches. These were the thing. Cost thousands of dollars in a, in a, in a watch shop. But you could give your mate 10 bucks, he'd go back to Hong Kong and come back with one that looked pretty much like legitimate. And uh, we'd get these, and they'd come back, like the suitcases filled with like 50 of these. They've just made probably. 500 bucks on the little transaction. We'd all get these brand new Targ watches. We'd, look, we'd feel pretty great about ourselves for about two months. But we'd wear it into the shower and so the water would wear away the numbers on the dial. So, so you'd end up having this watch that looked a bit like Targ, but you knew it wasn't because it had no numbers on it. And eventually, about three months later, the big hand would fall off and it'd be rattling around in it, you know. That is what false glory is like. That's what the Bible keeps telling us. Jesus warns us about chasing the things which will rust and spoil and, and will be eaten by vermin. These are things that are not bad. They're just not what we, they're not what we, we are built and purposed for. But do you notice, this is not like the glory that God is offering. This is not like what it means to chase God's glory, to be about God's glory. I think actually the problem about, uh, one of the mindset mistakes we make is we think God's glory is like another one of these, but maybe a bit bigger and bolder. You know, it's kind of like in the same category. And so that's why we might even say it's one of our priorities, when I think it's just altogether different in, in terms of quality and shape and character. God's glory is so different to this. Philippians 2, the second passage we read, is a passage all about God's glory. I'm just going to open it up. If, you're, if you've got a Bible in front of you, it's on page 1179 in the Pew Bibles. And, and if you look at this, this is, what, this is how the, the song, this fame, it was probably a song that was going around in the early church, which Paul then quotes, right? Because he, he obviously believes that this song captures the story of Jesus Look at those last three verses. This is a song about the glory of God. 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. To what? To the glory of God the Father. This is the glory passage. This is the glory that Jesus is talking about. This is the glory which, which Paul says our whole lives is about. This, Jesus Christ, raised up, seated on a throne where not a single person can stand in his presence. We must all kneel. Where every, vo- every voice is about him. This is the glory, right? But I want you to see how Jesus gets to the glory. How does he get there? He doesn't just get elevated further and further up. No, he gets to the glory through verses 6 to 8. He gets to the glory by going down from the throne, by coming to earth. And Paul says, not just becoming a human, but dying on a cross. He goes right down. He goes right down to the the depths of, of powerlessness and weakness. He's the great prince who doesn't just risk it all, but loses it all at this point. And this is actually the heart of God's glory. You see, actually, God's glory is this down before we go up movement. It is an act of mercy that purchases glory. and, And God's glory cannot be separated from that. God's glory is to submit himself. To offer himself, because of course, verses six to eight is God's great gift to the world. It is Jesus taking our place. And so the Bible is saying God's glory is actually all about mercy. God is most glorified when he's most merciful. God looks his biggest when he's most generous. And as we apply that to ourselves, we say this oh, I lost my slide. What happened? There it is. We say this. We say, when we receive grace, God gets the glory. That's how God has entitled his glory. He said, I want to look great and big. I want to look as big as I am. I'm telling you how that's going to be. By me pouring myself out to you. By me pouring myself out for you. I want you to imagine a physician, wealthy, pours his whole life into research, finds a cure, a cure for an illness which has ravaged a country. Right? He goes there. He sets up his, his, you know, his, his surgery or his, his uh, facilities. Now, when does he get his glory? He gets his glory as each person comes in and receives their treatment as healed. Right? And to the extent people receive that, He is glorified. Who he is as a doctor becomes greater with every person who takes upon his treatment, his healing, his medicine. Jesus Christ is the great physician. And the Puritans tell us that Jesus Christ's glory increases to the extent that we receive and accept his mercy. The more you're willing to to accept his mercy and his grace in the gospel, the more glorious Jesus Christ really looks. Because that is what glory is for Jesus. You know, that actually shapes our work, you see. It actually says to glorify God is not first and foremost about excellence. It's not being the best at whatever you are. Because that's you doing something. 
To glorify God is first and foremost about dependence, actually. Receiving from God. Because the dynamic of the gospel is that God is glorified when he is allowed to pour himself out for you. I think sometimes we think, oh, I'll be the best of this thing and then God will be glorified. No, because that is, a, that is God glorified because of who you are. But God is glorified in your work because of who he is. And the greater that your work can reflect God's mercy to you right, and his offer of mercy and grace to you, God is made great. God is made truly great. And I'll tell you what, that is freedom. It means you don't need to be the best of whatever you are to glorify God. You just need to be someone who's constantly dependent on God in the midst of your labour, and he will be glorified. Praise be the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonder of the gospel, which is not about our own labour, but about your mercy. And so, Lord God, would you allow our work, whatever it is, wherever it is, to whomever it is offered, to glorify you as more and more people see our dependence on you, our thanksgiving to you, because your word has revealed to us you are a God of generosity and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.